Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. After body electrodes have been attached to monitor heartbeat and breathing, the first items of clothing are the water-cooled underwear and a urine collector. NASA is trying to land boots on the moon in the next three years. But what will the astronauts wear? The pressure suit has to guard against extreme temperatures, hard radiation from the sun, and tiny meteorites. The spacesuits American and European astronauts wear haven't been updated since 1978. And when it comes to moonwalking, these old school suits just won't do. Today on Space Curious, we'll hear from the experts developing the very first spacesuits designed for the lunar surface since 1978. So if you see pictures, uh, you know, we're all familiar with of, um, of the boot prints on the moon and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and, uh, and then the, the subsequent crews that went to the moon. All of those uh, spacesuits were, were made by uh, Hamilton standard back in the day. That's retired NASA astronaut Dan Burbank. He's a senior tech fellow for Collins Aerospace, the company that manufactured NASA's last moon suits. They're still producing important spacesuit tech today. When NASA sends humans back to the moon, the old spacesuits used on board the space station won't be invited along for the ride. Instead, the agency is using decades of knowledge to create a whole new suit. It's a great spacesuit for microgravity. It's not the kind of spacesuit that you want for surface operations on the, on the moon. So we have this great opportunity and challenge in front of us right now to develop a next generation spacesuit that's, uh, that, that is intended for surface operations and would allow the crews to, to do uh, geology and resource extraction on the, on the surface of the moon and, and spend long time there. Let's meet our second spacesuit expert. Hello, my name is Kavya Manyapu. I currently work at NASA in EVA operations, which means spacesuits and spacewalks, and this will be for Artemis missions, taking us back to the moon. Prior to NASA, Kavya oversaw the spacesuits for Boeing's astronaut spacecraft Starliner. These futuristic blowing blue suits don't look anything like the bright orange pumpkin suits that you'd see during the space shuttle days. The Boeing flight suits are sleek and slimmer than their predecessors. Like any gal, I'm a fan of pockets, and these suits have a lot of storage for easy access. The bright blue suits are also covered in black zippers connecting the torso, arms, and legs, which make them easier to put on and off. The helmets are also soft and can zip on. With touchscreen-friendly gloves and boots designed by Reebok, they are pretty hip, if I do say so myself. I've posted some pictures at spacecurious.show. So I had this great opportunity coming right out of college to work on Starliner. And I started out on that program, literally got an opportunity to see Starliner go from PowerPoints to all the way to launching our first flight test. Once again, Kavya is starting from scratch, developing the spacewalk plan for NASA's Artemis program. You know, we went to the moon 50 years ago and 
now picking up where we left off and trying to look at, you know, what are all the other challenges that we need to face and what we have learned from Apollo and what can we improve so we can go back to the moon and this time not just for short missions, but we're looking at long duration missions. Spacebox are what NASA calls an extravehicular activity, or EVA, because they happen outside of a spacecraft and eventually a lunar habitat. Right now, all the EVAs that we do, we call them microgravity EVAs. Once we go to moon or in the future to Mars, it's a planetary surface EVA. And there are a couple of things that are different when you're going from microgravity to surface. And one of the obvious things is you want to you will be using your your legs a lot more walking and traversing the surfaces you will also be aided with rovers in the future where you have to be able to drive them why is it so important that we have a, a whole new kind of suit design for the artemis program 50 years is a long time to have both you know, get the lessons that we've learned from Apollo programs, as well as improved technology um, in various areas of science and technology, as well as all the lessons we've learned from putting humans on a space station for the last 20 years. So obviously our thought process, our design process, and all of that have evolved and made us much more smarter in how we want to design our spacesuits. There are three types of suits that are typically needed for astronauts. And so just like the costumes we wear or the dresses we wear on a daily basis, we have one for you know each occasion. We actually have spacesuits for each of these um, different tasks. Let's break those down. A launch and entry suit is one of the suits that crew wear while they're inside a spacecraft. And just as an example, you know, for example, the Starliner spacesuits. Astronauts wear those suits uh, when they do, like I, I like to say, a taxi ride to space station and back. And what that suit does is it actually protects you in case there is a cabin de decompression in your spacecraft, either while you're getting to ISS or coming back from ISS. And that suit pretty much pressurizes and keeps the astronauts safe by providing them enough oxygen and removing carbon dioxide for that short duration. These are pretty lightweight, about 40 pounds or so, and they can be worn with the full weight of Earth's gravity. Now, the second type of spacesuits are the ones that we see astronauts wearing on space station outside, especially when they have to fix something. Or this week, we've actually had several EVAs happening, uh, and astronauts are actually installing new solar arrays. So those type of spacesuits are called microgravity spacesuits. And these suits really have to operate outside in the harsh environment of space. And these uh, provide, I like to call them as a mini spaceship. It's your personalized spaceship in itself because the spacesuit is providing you the capability to allow our crew to go outside and actually work outside. And they have to function or carry all the functions that a real spacecraft does, whether that's, you know, providing oxygen, removing carbon dioxide, temperature, humidity, you know, you name it. These spacesuits weigh a lot, like 320 pounds, because they are worn in microgravity. 
The current EMUs you will recognize from any spacewalk you've seen on NASA TV, and they are made up of hard upper torsos, bottoms, and life support packs. These suits require some teamwork to put on before leaving the ISS airlock. Former astronaut Dan Burbank knows from personal experience what it's like to work in these suits. My perspective as a crew member, to be in space is is, is wonderful. To be able to look out the window, you know, at the Earth and, and take pictures of this glorious planet from the vantage point of a space station is, is just spectacular. But looking through, you know, four or five inches of glass on, you know, on one of the windows on space station doesn't compare to looking through a, a few millimeters of, you know, crystal clear polycarbonate in your helmet. So all of the crew, we all, you know, look very much look forward to the chance to put on one of the spacesuits and go outside. During spacewalks outside the space station, astronauts work a lot with their hands, but don't need quite as much mobility with their legs. The work on the moon will require a lot of walking around. You now have movement, and there's a lot more dexterity that's needed, a lot more mobility that's needed, a lot more uh, navigational capabilities that's required. NASA has also made it a requirement that the suits are easier to put on without help from another person even though the astronauts will be flying in pairs. It's wearable and removable by a single crew member. The fancy word is don and doff the suit. So that's in our requirement set. And we want to, you know, be able to have those kind of design features for the crew to be able to do that. And as the new moon suits come into focus, Dan says companies like Collins Aerospace are able to use what we know from the EVAs during the Apollo missions and space station. We, uh, we, we all as a community have our eyes wide open on the kinds of things that we need to be successful. All of us in, the, in both the industry and the NASA community have spent a lot of time hearing the lessons learned from the Apollo crew members that have done that. And we've had a lot of opportunity to also practice in different analog environments, both on the surface of the Earth and also in simulated partial G, both in the neutral buoyancy lab and also in some in a couple of facilities that NASA has at Johnson Space Center that allows you to do a partial offload of the mass of the suit. And so we can learn a lot about the ergonomics, learn a lot about the human factors, learn a lot about how to, how to, uh, to make the combined human and suit system as efficient as possible. Do you think that the moon is going to be a proving ground for spacesuit technology for Mars? You know, I know the life support systems are different, but that planetary spacesuit, if it can be adapted for Mars, will that be a, a, a critical milestone to getting the few, first humans on Mars? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. You know, that's an ideal proving ground to learn how to not just test the hardware, but also learn how to, to live off the land, so to speak. So you can't consider going to a place like Mars unless you have the ability to use the resources that are there. The U.S. plans to mine resources on the moon, such as water ice, to manufacture supplies like fuel, instead of constantly launching supplies there, which is extremely costly. To launch anything just to low Earth orbit, it takes about 20 pounds of fuel per pound of spacecraft or supplies or anything we need to get off the planet. To get to the surface of the moon, it's about 150 pounds of propellant for every pound of supplies. That adds up. And rocket fuel is not exactly going for 2 or $3 a gallon like what I put in my Subaru. It costs about $2,600 per kilogram. 
for SpaceX to launch its workhorse rocket, the Falcon 9, sending a spacecraft to low Earth orbit. And SpaceX is one of the few companies that can actually save and recycle their fuel in the event of a launch scrub, which as we know, happens a lot in the space biz. One Falcon 9 launch could cost between 51 and $65 million. So the thing the moon now provides us is in the south pole of the moon and the regolith, there's probably, you know, 200 million tons of water by our estimates. And water is water, but water is also air and water is also rocket fuel if you break it into the hydrogen and oxygen. So it's a, it's a gas station. It's the, it's, it affords us the ability to learn how to live off the land, to do industrial scale resource extraction. That will be a critical capability in order to be able to do missions to Mars. NASA and its international partners plan to go to the moon and build a long-term habitat. And next-generation planetary spacesuits need to allow for a lot of movement. When you actually look at the suit itself, it may look kind of similar to what you see on space station. You know, it's the same kind of white-looking, big, like a Michelin tire. But there's a lot more improved capability as part of those suits. And just to give you some uh, details, you know, we've improved the mobility of the suits. We've changed how, you know, our shoulders are placed, how our, you know, the lower part of the spacesuits are. They're much more capable in terms of providing that mobility to the astronauts. It's pretty important that the astronauts can bend down, pick up samples, and use tools because they will be acting as lunar geologists. Um, It's a unique place to understand and learn about our own origins. And, And so we want the astronauts to be able to kneel, get samples, you know, take, you know, uh, rock samples or regolith samples, including some core samples. So it's very important that we want them to have that mobility. Those sound like things that geologists on Earth do. So, you know, when you're working on the suit, are you kind of taking into perspective what geologists say, what astronauts say about spacewalking? I mean, has there been feedback from maybe the Apollo astronauts about moonwalking? Yeah, absolutely. We actually, um, all of the above, right? And it's very important that this is an iterative process. I mean, we have crew who have flown and done extensive EVA and we get great feedback from them. We work with our science counterpart scientists um, where we want to understand like what exactly are your objectives? What, you know, what do you want to gather? And then we have our team that kind of combines all of that to help our designers with the actual suit design itself. And um, our team actually designs the entire EVA and, you know, needs to make sure that all of these aspects are taken into consideration while we train the crew and operate the the actual spacewalks. The new suits will allow for longer spacewalks thanks to the backpacks astronauts carry that supply oxygen and cooling. Uh, We plan for contingencies as well. So we are looking at probably about a seven and a half hour of EBAs. And our portable life support system has been built to be modular. So in the future, if, you know, we need to upgrade anything, we're able to do that. And I mean, you'll be surprised doing an eight hour, seven and a half hour EVA is very, very tiring. <laughs> what are some of the things that make it so tiring on, on the human body working around in a spacesuit like that for six and a half to seven hours? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, considering that you really don't have any calories to even consume, but you're burning calories throughout that duration. In addition, you are, you know, so focused, it takes a lot of mental capability when you're doing EBAs, even, you know, our astronauts who, who work on ISS missions, you know, the feedback that we get from them, and it takes a lot of strength to work against the pressure of the suit. It, it's actually kind of humbling to know that once you're in the suit, you'll actually understand, oh, it's not what I thought. And now you have to think about, you know, uh, your dynamics have changed around you and thinking through that. And you're not only thinking about how you're working, but constantly having the situational awareness of where your body is and what, you know, what your ground mission control is telling you and the procedures you need to follow. So there's a lot of both physical and mental capacity and workload that it takes up to, to be able to do that. After the break, we'll learn about one of the biggest challenges moonwalkers from the past faced and what NASA can do to tackle it this time around. When Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin first walked on the moon, they described the ground as covered in sand, and after a short walk around, started to realize their spacesuits were no longer so white. The, uh, the blue color of my boots have uh, completely disappeared now into this uh, I don't know exactly what color to describe this other than bayish uh, cocoa color. Seems to be uh, covering uh, most of the, uh, the wider part of the boot. <laughs> when we went to the moon for the first time, we knew dust was going to be a problem, but oh boy, we didn't know how bad of a problem it would be. By Apollo 17, the final mission on the moon, astronaut Eugene Cernan told Houston, I'll tell you, we've become very respectful of the dust. In fact, in the transcript from one of the final moonwalks during their mission, the astronauts mentioned moon dust more than a hundred times. Every other moment was, don't forget the dust cover, or I need to dust the camera off. On day seven, Cernan says, I'm getting tired of dusting. My primary tool, the dust brush and the hammer. Driving the moon rover around, Cernan and astronaut Harrison Schmidt remarked on giving the rover a workout, but then said the dust was starting to become a problem. Boy, everything is stiff. Everything is just full of dust. There's got to be a point where the dust just overtakes you, and everything mechanical quits moving. I'm thrilled I got to talk to Kavya Manipu about the dust. She actually did her PhD on the subject. Why is moon dust such kind of an obstacle when you're talking about anything to do with spacewalking or, or going to the moon, habitation, anything at all? So if you look at the moon, there's no atmosphere. And pretty much the surface is exposed to the vacuum of space. And what that does is you have solar uh, rays and UV rays and plasma all bombarding the moon and electrically charging the dust that's on the moon. And what that does is when you go out and you know, you're doing your EVAs, your, your suits pretty much, the dust just sticks to, you know, it has this electric charge and it ends up sticking to anything it comes in contact with. Up until that point, that's fine. You know, they, they are attracted to these and they stick. 
But the real problem comes in where because there is no atmosphere and no erosion on the moon, this dust is actually very abrasive, unlike the dust on the Earth. Another thing that makes the dust and the regolith on the, the moon especially sinister is it also uh, tends to want to electrostatically levitate itself, essentially. So it'll actually, and it'll migrate up the suit. And if you look at some of those pictures, you know, when the crews are returning back from the moon or between their EVAs, everybody's covered. The suits are, are covered in that, that gray dust. They're sharp. They've been hit by, you know, so many micrometeoroids and they're very, um, very unique and they can cut through things. So if you do end up having dust in your suits or any other hardware that's extensively used on the moon and you're moving, it could pretty much cut through, you know, your materials. The dust also made it back to the lunar landers during the Apollo program. And when the astronauts took their helmets off, they inhaled it. As a result, all 12 moonwalkers suffered from symptoms, including sneezing and nasal congestion. Apollo 17 astronaut Harrison Schmidt described the symptoms as lunar hay fever and said the dust smelled like spent gunpowder. And over a period of time, that actually causes, you know, a lot of um, toxicological problems, if I said that right. It's, it impacts your lungs, it impacts, you know, all the other organs, your skin, etc. So there's, you know, and then you also have other electronic equipment and you have this electrically charged particles that might, you know, short things out. This time around, there are design elements to the new suits that will help ward off some of this pesky dust from getting into a habitat. The new moon suits, we now have a rear entry, meaning the astronauts would open a hatch in the back of the suit and enter through them. And this provides, you know, a capability in the future for dust protection as well, where you can probably leave your suits outside and the crew is able to get into the suits and don't have to carry all that dust into, you know, a habitable module. Dan says there are a number of ways to potentially deal with this problem. Uh, you know, essentially one way to do it, which would be a little bit more of a brute force kind of a approach, would be to essentially have what you might, very similar to what you might have going into a clean room for, you know, a satellite preparation or a solid state, you know, silicon, you know, factory where you're making chips and so forth, where you essentially have a, an overgarment. He's talking about those white bunny suits you see as teams work on a spacecraft prior to launch. There are a lot of threads, a lot of different technologies that are out there. And I would probably tell you that in those early missions, there's going to be probably three or four different candidate technologies that'll be evaluated in the environment. And uh, we'll get smarter as we go. And I know you have developed some technology you've got a couple of patents on that is really cool. It kind of repels dust. I wanted to check in. First of all, can you explain um, what what this technology is and what it does? And, and then maybe an update on, on kind of where that stands. Sure. Um, you know, think of your suit looking like a Spider-Man suit. I mean, I, just, uh, I, I kind of jokingly say that, but the technology uses carbon nanotubes that are embedded into the outer layer of either suit or habitable modules or anything that you're going to protect. It's going to be embedded within the outer layer fabric. And when you send an electric charge to it, it creates an electric field and instantly repels or removes any dust that's coming in contact or already adhered to the 
the surface. Kavya refers to her moon-repelling technology as Spider, as a reference to the Marvel superhero. And hence my joke about Spider-Man, but it's a specially integrated carbon nanotube dust ejection removal system. And the technology is very versatile in the sense that you can configure it to any shape or customize it to any module, anything that you want to protect. And it uses like very, very low uh, amounts of power to use it. And hence it's like very um, feasible to integrate it into various systems. Now, Kavya is working to test the technology further at NASA, where it could be used in the near future on moon missions, and maybe one day she might even wear it. If given the opportunity, would you go to the moon? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Sign me up. Well, that was something that, you know, I, I grew up dreaming about and something that was a motivation for me to uh, love science and engineering. So hopefully one day I'm able to go. Um, in any case, I'm really, I'm, I'm really um, humbled by the opportunities that, you know, I've been given to help with the program and, and actually see humanity go beyond low Earth orbit onto the moon and breaking all barriers along the way. For a long time, when I thought about moonwalkers, I pictured Neil and Buzz in their 60s technology suits, and it was hard to imagine anything otherwise because it's been 50 years since we've been to the moon. In the near future, NASA could put up a round of contract bids for companies like Collins Aerospace to develop their own spacesuits, and then NASA would become a customer instead of owning the suits. This business model has proven successful already for the commercial crew program, in which NASA buys rides from SpaceX and Boeing to fly astronauts to space instead of owning the spacecraft. And the thing that we're most encouraged by is that NASA's, you know, you know, enthusiasm and interest in allowing and enabling industry to innovate and to uh, to use the best of what industry has and then augment that with some of the great work that NASA has done with the Exploration EMU and other systems and essentially allow the industry partners uh, to work with NASA to create a solution for EVA, for spacesuits, that serve all these multiple uh, customers. But now, engineers like Kavya are bringing moonwalking into the 21st century and helping the Artemis generation define what those moments on the moon will look like through another generation. I was strolling on the moon one day In a merry, merry month of December now, May, May when they're much to my surprise, a pair of bunny eyes. Doop, 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 doop. Oh, is this a neat way to travel? Isn't it great? Dum, da, dum, dum, dum. Dum, da, dum, dum, dum. If you've got a question or a story idea, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at EMSpec or submit your idea on the homepage at spacecurious.show. This episode was produced and edited by Zach Rosen and myself. Thank you very much to Kavya Manipu and Dan Burbank for filling us in on the future of walking on the moon. Until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.